Hi folks, my name is Drew Ray and this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Back in October, a listener called Abraham Smith asked me to do an episode on the NTSB report into a series of accidents on Metro North Railroad. Metro North operates trains and track infrastructure in and around New York City, extending into New Jersey and Connecticut. Like many rail operators, they run their own trains on their own tracks, other trains on their tracks, and their trains on tracks run by other operators. In the period May 2013 to March 2014, Metro North suffered five accidents, three derailments and two employee fatalities. Since it was fairly unusual to have five ongoing investigations for the same railway at the same time, and since early hearings had raised some common factors between the accidents, the NTSB, the USA's Transport Accident Investigation Body, decided to produce a special report looking at organisational factors across all five accidents. The media was also noticing a pattern here. The news articles about the first couple of accidents were talking about how unusual the accidents were given Metro North's safety record, but by the time of the March 2014 fatality, they were pointing out what a bad year it had been and pointing to an apparent serious safety problem at Metro North. The NTSB published an abstract of the report, but they were slow to release the full thing, so I've been delayed in putting together this episode. In the meantime, there's been yet another fatal accident, this time a level crossing crash, killing the driver of an SUV and five train passengers. I'll have to ignore the most recent accident for now, because the investigation is only just underway. Instead, we'll look at the five accidents in the NTSB special report. The first question we might want to ask is whether there's anything significant in the number of accidents. The usual mathematical model for accident occurrences is called a Poisson distribution. A Poisson distribution is what you get if events with an underlying likelihood per unit time occur randomly and independently. When you draw events from a Poisson distribution, they don't arrive steadily, they have lulls and bursts. This is sometimes called Poisson clumping or Poisson burst behaviour. There doesn't have to be any reason for a clump of any particular size. It's just what you expect if you draw often enough for long enough. When we see a group of events happening together, it isn't enough to ask if this is more than we'd expect, because we actually expect bursts and gaps. We could ask if the local increase is statistically significant, but even statistically significant clumps still happen by chance. Let's run the numbers though and see. We need to be careful where we start and stop counting. It's tempting to start with the date of the first accident and end with the date of the last accident. But if you think about it, this gives you two bonus guaranteed events that inflates the count. So let's instead go by calendar years and consider 2013, where there were four accidents. The next thing we need to be careful about is what we're actually counting. Once you start looking at a clump or cluster, it's tempting to start counting things that wouldn't ordinarily be considered noteworthy. So for example, one of the four accidents in 2013 was a freight train derailment with no injuries. Now if we're going to count every derailment, then we need to count every derailment in every year. 
and Metro North has suffered an average of four derailments a year since 2006. In 2013, there were five derailments, which is not remotely unusual. What if we go by total accidents? In terms of total accidents, the Federal Railroad Administration records an average of 25 events that it considers meet the category of accident for Metro North each year. In 2013, there were 17 of these events. Again, not unusual at all. So, 2013 was certainly a notable year, with high-profile events, but there's no obvious pattern here. One of the accidents in particular resulted in a large number of injuries, and that seems to have drawn attention to the other events, which would not be remarkable in a different year. 2014 was similarly not statistically noteworthy. None of this, of course, means that we can't learn from the accidents. After all, that's what accident investigation is all about. And it's a good idea, too, to compare different accidents. As we've talked about before on the podcast, it's hard in hindsight to work out which details are actually important. Looking at multiple events at once helps us to understand what's special about an accident and what's normal for the railroad. So let's go through the individual events and then we'll talk about the combination report. At six in the evening on Friday, May 17, an eastbound passenger train was heading to New Haven along a line with four parallel tracks. There were 250 passengers on board, and the train struck a track defect at 74 miles an hour. The first set of wheels on the first car managed to make it over the defect, but the next set derailed and then the rest of the train just followed along, running off the rails. The railway line was wide and flat at this point, so we didn't have any cars tipping over, just running smoothly off the tracks. The result, though, was that the train was left straddling multiple tracks and there was a train coming in the opposite direction. The driver of this second westbound train saw sparks and falling wires and applied the emergency brakes. The train slowed down, but it couldn't stop before hitting the middle cars of the first train. The physical cause of this accident was a break between two rails where they were supposed to be linked end to end. Wheels passing over unwelded rail joints is what makes the traditional clickety-clack sound of trains. The smoother the joint, the lower the impact forces between the wheels and the rails. And the ideal is to have continuously welded rails so you don't have joints. A smooth joint is better for both the rolling stock and the infrastructure. In this case, the rails were actually of slightly different sizes joined end-to-end so the higher rail had been ground down to try to make a smooth transition. Pieces of metal called compromise bars had been added to each side of the rails to form the solid link. The method and the quality of this work were both suboptimal. Further, there was missing ballast under the joint, which meant that the rail could pump, it could bounce up and down as trains went over it. So all this movement up and down meant that the compromise bars had experienced fatigue cracking, and they eventually fractured, allowing the two rail ends to separate. Metro-North was running late on its maintenance cycle for rail surfacing. And this was particularly a problem since two out of the four tracks were closed for a long-term project, meaning that the remaining two had twice the normal volume of traffic, but without any extra maintenance. 
Track inspections along that part of the railway were conducted by driving a vehicle along one of the four tracks and looking across at the others. This isn't a good way of doing it. It's problematic because it's hard to see all of the tracks from that one position, and also because the inspectors can actually tell a lot about a rail simply from the sound and feel of running over it. And if you're just running over a different track using visuals, that doesn't work as well. The most recent inspection had noticed some of the missing balance and the flexing rail, but it hadn't noticed the cracked joint. At midday on May 28, on the same line, a work team foreman was struck and killed by a passenger train. The foreman and a crane team were moving rails between two tracks using the crane. The foreman asked for and was given a block on the line section. A block is an order recorded in the control system software that prevents trains from being routed onto that section. Any attempt to issue train orders that conflict with the block gets rejected by the control, so it's a protection for people while they're working on the lines. Meanwhile, in the control room, there was a student controller learning how to use the software. He was supposed to be receiving on-the-job training under supervision, but somehow he managed to accidentally remove the block without his mentor noticing. After a similar incident early that month, they'd put an extra feature into the software requiring controllers to confirm their intent to release the block. So the student had managed to remove the block and confirm it. Clearly he thought he was actually doing a correct action deliberately, and his mentor wasn't watching at the time. The result was that a train came round the bend on the work track, only to see a crane and a foreman right in front of it certainly within stopping distance. Luckily, the crane was actually physically based on a different track, so all the operator had to do was swing the boom of the crane out of the way, and they managed to do that in time. But the train clipped a piece of rail that was being moved, and it struck the foreman directly. There are a couple of different problems shown by this accident. The most obvious is the lack of procedural protection for removing blocks including the way they were training controllers. But there's also the fact that this didn't need to be a single point of failure at all. The foreman was protected just by that single order in the piece of software. Rather than relying on software blocks, there are a number of backups that can be used, both to prevent a block being accidentally removed and to make sure that there's an alert when it happens. And none of these backups were in place. After the accident, Metro-North started using a system where track workers carried electronic key generators, kind of like the ones that lots of online banking systems use. So now the blocks can only be removed with a code provided by the worker, which puts them in positive control of their own safety. But there was no such system on the line at the time. So on to the third accident. On July 18, a flat car train carrying refuse derailed with no injuries. The immediate cause of this accident was that the tracks were slightly too far apart at the point of derailment. That particular spot on the line had been flagged previously for a couple of reasons. The ballast was fouled, showing as an obvious different colour in photographs. Due to inadequate drainage, there was mud mixed all through the rocks. And the concrete ties were cracked, which let the rails bow outwards under pressure. They'd run a geometry car over the track recently, 
and the track measurement there had indicated that the gauge was at the very, very limit of tolerance. On December 1, though, there was another passenger derailment, and this one was much more serious. A passenger train was travelling at 82 miles an hour, around a 30 mile an hour bend, when it left the rails with the cars falling over and sliding along on their sides. The glazing, the windows of the carriage, broke during the accident, and four passengers were killed as a result of falling partly out of or entirely out of the carriage. There were 61 injuries, and two of the very serious ones also involved people hitting the ground outside the carriage. Before the accident, the engineer of the train, the driver, had complained of fatigue and been diagnosed with hypothyroidism. After the accident, he was diagnosed with a serious sleep disorder that resulted in excessive daytime sleepiness. And two weeks before the accident, his work schedule had been dramatically altered, requiring him to wake up at 3.30 each morning, whereas he had spent more than the past two years starting work in the late afternoon. So you had a driver who had serious sleep problems was being asked to get up at 3.30 in the morning after a change in shift patterns, so he hadn't adjusted to the new patterns yet. He was speeding before he came into the corner and probably fell asleep and never slowed down. Speeding was not uncommon on Metro North trains, which were not fitted with any sort of positive train control to enforce speed restrictions. The final accident in this series happened on March 10, 2014. A team was working on a section of track that included three spots. For simplicity, let's just call them A, B, and C. There was a block that gave them protection between A and B, but didn't include between B and C whereas they thought they had protection for all three spots. The person who'd originally placed the block knew that they didn't have protection the whole way, but as the orders had been passed down the line, they'd got fuzzier and fuzzier, so these workers thought that they had definite protection, whereas they had none. There was a train coming past on one of the other lines, and they weren't worried because they had authorization and protection, but at the last minute, they realised that it was switching tracks to come right through where they were standing. Two of the workers noticed this in time and dived out of the way, but a third was struck and killed. So we have five accidents here that seem to have quite different physical causes. We've got a piece of rail that's been inadequately put together and which suffers fatigue cracking leading to a derailment. We have a trainee operator who removes a block on a line, allowing a train to get routed towards a crane and a foreman. We have a flat car which derails simply because the lines are too far apart from inadequate drainage. We have a very serious accident where a driver falls asleep while speeding around a corner. And then we have a misunderstanding about where the block is placed on the line and a work team working outside of protection. So it seems that these are quite different accidents and that they'd have quite different causes. But once we start looking up through the organisation that was behind these, we see that there are some accidents that really have very similar organisational causes. So one thing that we can look at is 
the, the main safety documentation that was driving the systems behind this was just that documentation. There was a system safety program plan that was driving operations on the railway, which was produced by, for the purpose of compliance and had very little to do with what actually happened. Here's a quote from the chief safety officer talking about the SSPP. I don't think it's effective at all. I think my whole 28 years here, it was something that we reviewed when APTA and the FRA came in to do their triennial audit. We would distribute it to the corporate leadership team or the department heads when we'd sign off on it. And that was every couple of years. I think it was every two or three years. We, it was every few years we'd dust it off, reread it, and maybe change a couple of names and department restructuring, some responsibilities a little bit. Distribute it, then it would get maintained. Just the... Well, the appendices would get maintained in our office and actually used to just reside out in the hallway there in the file cabinet. It would take up the whole cabinet, all the appendices in it. So I think we'd recognise it was not very effective. End quote. Now, given that the safety policy said, Metro-North's commitment to the system safety program plan will permeate every aspect of railroad operations, I think it's safe to suggest that the safety policy also had a bit of a disconnect from reality. Their main safety program, their improvement initiative, was called Priority One. When employees were asked to describe this program, most said that Priority One is a slogan that appears on posters and brochures. Priority One called for a set of safety committees, and these meetings were dog and pony shows reporting good news and figures without discussing problems. The safety department as an organisation was apparently doing a fairly good job with personal injuries and occupational health, and it had good working relationships with the medical director and medical review officer. There were guidelines for things like hearing protection, lead exposure and vision. And the number of personal injuries was steadily declining. To operational staff, though, the safety department was known only as an invisible department. So how does this organisation tie into the five accidents? Big operational decisions, like closing two lines of the New Haven track, which was involved in the first two accidents, weren't being subject to proper risk assessment. They were treated as operational decisions, and even though they had a big impact on safety, no one was thinking about that impact. So the decisions influenced things like the amount of maintenance needed and the quality of the work. They increased the number of workers operating on tracks adjacent to operational tracks, which meant that there needed to be a strong block protection system in place. As a result of these operational decisions, there was a decrease in safety that led to close calls that were almost dress rehearsals for both New Haven accidents. There had been previous cases of undetected broken joints and of electronic blocks being mistakenly removed. In each case, these incidents had been investigated, but the actions that resulted weren't suitable for preventing the accidents. All of the derailments involved conditions that could have been identified and fixed earlier. Upfront investment in either automated monitoring equipment or more rigorous inspections and tests could have flagged the problems more clearly, and a more targeted maintenance or driver action program could have fixed them more quickly. 
Train speed data, for instance, was collected but not monitored. Studying this data after the December 1 derailment revealed that speeding was common and that schedules were too tight so that the drivers actually had to speed to avoid late running. The organisation had an overall management philosophy that on-time running was a good measure of overall quality of operations. They figured that on-time trains could only be achieved if you had reliable infrastructure and rolling stock. So if you use running on time as a performance target, that trickles down to place the right pressures in the right places in the organisation. What happened instead, though, was that to meet the target in the short term, serious maintenance was being pushed back. So eventually they were right, performance would have to crash. But not before there was, quite literally, a crash. In safety culture surveys, management personnel all agreed with the statements management is committed to workplace safety and management does not pressure staff to maintain service or operations, potentially at a cost to safety. When the frontline staff were asked the same question, most of them disagreed. It was pretty clear that safety information didn't flow well up or down the organisation. Briefings and oversight were weak, and training, particularly on things like how to do inspections, audits and tests, was informal and sporadic. Management reports upwards were only for major accidents or summaries of injury statistics. And the reality behind the statistics wasn't discussed in detail at senior level. Partly this is because safety management had deliberately been decentralised to the operational groups, without keeping any board-level oversight of the distributed safety work. Now, at this point, if you're forming a bad impression of Metro North, then I need to refer you back to where we started. There's nothing particularly notable in Metro North's accident statistics. So absent evidence to the contrary, we shouldn't assume that there's anything particularly unusual in the investigation findings. These are the sorts of things that crop up in every accident report. So rather than assuming that they describe an unusually unsafe railway organisation, it may be more reasonable to assume that they describe the common practice of safety in railway organisations. I wouldn't be surprised if most of the safety practitioners listening to this podcast are hearing about safety plans that are disconnected from operations, investigations that put in place quick fixes but not systemic solutions, a focus on on-time performance as an indicator of a well-run organisation, and they're nodding along with been there, seen that expressions on their faces. That's certainly the way I feel about it. This isn't safety management done well, but it isn't safety management done unusually either. Metro North's operations, including their safety programs, were compliant with federal rules. All of the findings by the NTSB relate to ineffectiveness rather than non-compliance. In fact, the word ineffective shows up an awful lot. This kind of suggests that the rail regulation and its enforcement was far too focused on making rules and checking that they were followed, rather than ensuring that rail operators had safety organisations that worked properly. And that sort of regulation encourages, and sometimes compels, operating companies 
to devote excessive attention to maintaining documents and records that have little connection to the actual operations. Metro-North themselves, in response to their own internal review of the problems, actually decided to reduce their on-time operating target from 97% to 93%. I think that shows a really good understanding at senior level of the way incentives and pressures drive operations. And also that change in performance targets sent a clear signal to the workforce that safety was a priority. It's kind of revealing and ironic that this move was criticised by the Governor of Connecticut, who almost immediately started grandstanding about how commuters have a right to safety and on-time performance, and demanded an action plan to improve on-time performance to 95% or better. That gives some indication of the bind that senior managers are in. They could invest heavily in new equipment for track monitoring and train protection, and get slammed for raising ticket prices. They could invest in maintenance, put good protection around their track workers, and get slammed for late trains. Certainly, they could have used their time and resources for safety more effectively. And in particular, they really do deserve criticism for poor awareness of the condition of their infrastructure and their own culture. But they were operating in a regulatory and political environment that pushed them to act as they did. Well, that's it for this episode of Disastercast. My thanks to Abraham for suggesting the episode, and for providing some links to resources, as well as his continued Patreon subscription. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can find it on Patreon.com, where you can join Daniel, Hunter, Patrick, Jesse, Abe and John in donating as little as a dollar an episode. It's easy to set up, and in return you feel good and I give you timely access to support material for each episode. If that's not your cup of tea, you could join VM, Arclight, Sean, STP, or Funny Bunny, amongst others, by tweeting about the show. Thank you to everyone who favourited or retweeted those tweets too. If you've got a topic or accident you'd like covered, you can contact me at feedback at disastercast.co.uk, or via the website disastercast.co.uk. Yeah, I'm teaching back in Australia, but my domain name prefers the cold weather. Till next time, keep safe.